So joining us today on the How Did You podcast is Bobby Friction, a BBC Asian network radio DJ who's been through a lot of different things in his life and I'm sure he'll tell you all about it. So Bobby, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Uh, even though we have a, a pandemic ravaging the world, I'm assuming some kind of extinction level event with a with a comet or an asteroid and and uh, maybe, you know, the evolution of uh, another species of human and, and infinite war. Apart from that, I'm fine. Good, I'm glad. Um, Obviously, you've been through lots of different years, eras of music, but did you ever see yourself becoming a radio DJ? Um, it's kind of strange, actually. Um, I dreamt of becoming a radio DJ, but I dreamt, uh, this is when I was in my teens, um, but I dreamt about it because I just really enjoyed music. It, it was a, a fantasy. It wasn't like, hey, I really want to become a DJ. What can I do? And what, what path should I take to make this happen? You know, in my head, I was still like, I want to be an astronaut, I, I, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I just really loved music and I really loved playing music to people. So um, around about 14 and 15, I remember thinking and listening into Radio 1 and just thinking, what a great job. Oh, I, I really like what these, these people do. And I, I specifically separated a radio DJ from all the other jobs that you would define as working in the media. So um, that was about it. But yeah, before that, astronaut, doctor, train driver, all that kind of stuff. And then uh, after that, uh, join a band, become a rock star and all the fantasy stuff. Um, it's, it's actually weird because when I finally ended up on Radio One, I remember thinking, oh yeah, that wasn't part of the plan, but I kind <laughs> of, I envisaged it and, and I, 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 for a while, I told myself that I'd, I'd made it happen, that I'd, I'd thunk it and it, you know, morphed into real life. But yeah, I think life's a bit more complicated than that. Definitely. Obviously, you started off in BBC Radio One, but then in two thousand and five, you jumped ship to BBC Asian Network and started presenting their album chart show, which arguably is the biggest point, I guess because you became the face of BBC Asian Network at that point. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I have some very good colleagues who would argue differently, and, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if I was so much the face, but I was definitely one of the big names on the Asian Network. Actually, I didn't just jump ship. Um, um, a lot of people think that. What I did was I joined Radio 1, then I got offered a show on the Asian Network, and then I actually had, I think it was four years, maybe four years, of doing both, and then I jumped ship. But yeah, there, there you know, it, 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 it was an interesting time because I had um, the real hardcore kind of mainstream heads and my friends at Radio 1 saying, you've got to show on Radio 1, this is the best gig ever. Oh my God, you know, like, uh, uh, remember to focus on this. And, you know, your Asian Network show can 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 be something you do on, on, on the weekends and all that stuff. Then I had my Asian Network uh, listeners and, 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 and colleagues kind of going, we're the real deal forget Radio 1, that's just like some some kind of thing that's been constructed by the so-called mainstream, you know, when you work as a person of colour, as a, as a minority, whether that's sexual, even, even in terms of how you think, um, things kind of collapse. Radio 1 isn't the be-all and end-all, and, and those big parts aren't the parts you always take. Anyway, so I was in a tug of war, and um, all I will say is Radio 1 was amazing. Um, I probably touched more non-South Asians and introduced more people 
to this music that I have been in love with all my life. And it was an amazing time. You know, I was there during the era of Chris Moyles and John Peel and, and Zane Lowe, you know, all people I, I worked with. Um, but the Asian Network gig, that was the real deal for me because I was actually broadcasting to the community who who knew the music, who loved the music, who, who took the music seriously. So Radio One was glitzy and full of lights, but the, the actual oxygen and the, the life support system came via the Asian Network. I, I can completely agree, because like you say, with the backing of BBC Asian Network and BBC Radio One, who do you go for? But obviously in 2003, your show with DJ Niall uh, won a Sony Radio Academy Award. That must have been some kind of euphoria. Madness. Okay, so it was uh, uh, the show I was doing with Nahal at the time. Uh, we got that Sony Award, I think, six months into starting our show. So uh, even that, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, your ego takes a real kind of explosion where it goes, I've only been on air six months and I already have a Sony Award. You know, we had people telling us, you've only been on air six months, you've got a Sony Award. Isn't this amazing? That's that's what, you know, journalists would say when they, they put a mic in front of our face. Um, but then on the other hand as well, um, I, because I'm, I'm uh, always, always cynically looking at the mainstream, having had a very kind of South Asian upbringing, kind of going, what does this mean? Is this the man? Is it the white man? Is it the establishment? Are they trying to buy us off? You know, so so even that was very intense at the time. But looking back at it now, it was amazing to get a Sony Award six months into my BBC career, okay, along, alongside my partner at the time. Um, and we used it, we, you know, I mean, what that did was it made sure that we were on Radio 1 for at least another five years because you don't fire Sony Award winners I was lucky enough to get another two Sony Awards, uh, two years after that and four years after that, one for a documentary I made and one for my Asian Network show. So after getting the hat trick, um, once again, you know, on the outside, it's brilliant. You're, you're able to walk into a room and someone kind of goes, this is a three-time Sony Award winner. <laughs> and certain people will take you really seriously. Uh, on the other level, the cynical side of me kind of went, this is just part of the game what does it truly mean you know what what does it does it mean anything the real prize and i'm going to sound like such a twat for saying this now but it's true the real prize was just being on air to lots of people especially my community playing music and celebrating it i can completely understand that because like you say you won a second gold um sony award for vote friction friction also won an award that must have been, like you say, within such a short amount of time, you're receiving reward, awards, sorry, left, right and centre, but truly they were justified. And let's not discount the fact that recently you've also been made an honorary professor at DMU. Yeah, well, I mean, let's face it, who cares about Sony Awards when you're at DMU? I mean, honestly, seriously, you know, you, know, um, you can't compare the two because uh, one's about your career, one's about uh, your peers and contemporaries, kind of celebrating what you do all right um and as i said i still had the cynic in me still kind of went this is this means nothing it's people trying to buy us off oh it does mean something but what does it truly mean uh whereas becoming an honorary professor at dmu was like being on the asian network because it felt real you know it felt 
for me, it didn't feel like I was being brought up. It didn't feel like the establishment was trying to eat me up. It really felt like someone or or an establishment had decided that I had something of worth to say. And uh, I remember going into DMU and delivering my my kind of acceptance lecture, uh, uh, keynote speech, whatever it was. And uh, I just remember halfway through it kind of going, oh my God, this is one of the best things I've ever done. I'll never forget this. I was there in that day. Um, I was in that speech. And I think that's not only what led to me kind of moving on and taking things for myself. As As egotistical as that may sound, it's also what led to this podcast today. And it's just, you got to make opportunities for yourself, things like that. You never know what's coming next. We never know when we're going to be thrown into another pandemic or who knows what. But you've also had many publications for Asian culture. You've been in the Rolling Stones. You've, you've wrote for NME. How was that? Because once again, that must have been something that you couldn't really predict as a child. No, I mean, if, if I wanted to be anything when I grew up, um, it happened in my late teens and I wanted to be a journalist. Um, it wasn't like some mad passion to be a journalist because, you know, when you're in your late teens, um, I think it's different actually these days because people in the late teens really know what they're doing. But back in the 1980s when I was growing up, there was a lot of kind of, well, I'm not sure, you know, and, and adults wouldn't go, you need to know what you're doing. You need a direction. I, I think young people uh, are very much more driven these days. But yeah, I started... I remember thinking, I don't want to do something traditional. Um, and I was doing A-levels. And then I realized that the college I was at was doing a sitting guild in journalism. Now, media studies is everywhere these days. When I did the sitting guilds in, well, it was journalism and media studies, um, there were only two universities in the whole of Britain doing media studies degrees. I think it was Central St. Martins and one of the other Red Brick Universities. So um, I remember just thinking, yeah, that's kind of what I should be doing because I'm creative, but I'm also really into English and expressing myself. I, I don't I don't think I'm an artist. I think I'm more someone who records artists, someone who takes the madness of art and culture and then kind of reflects it back to people who need someone to reflect it back to them. So I wanted to be a journalist at the time. So to fast forward much later on, because I started writing for uh, places like Enemy and Rolling Stone after I got my Radio 1 show and after I'd been on the Asian Network, I remember one night burning the midnight oil and kind of dealing with my first deadline and going, oh yeah, this is what I was going to do. This is what I wanted to do when I was 18. And once again, you know, I kind of fell into it, but um, yeah, very, journalism's very, very hard. If you ever want to talk about journalism, I'm ready to do another podcast because um, it's not easy. It's a lot easier to start a podcast, fade up a, you know, a a channel on a radio show, stand in front of a TV, for for me at least, and, and basically just start spewing amazing, beautifully curated bullshit but actual journalism is really really hard because you've got to write and you've got to write really good and you've got to write better than 99 percent of people on the planet and and it's got to be amazing and engaging so yeah people come onto this podcast and they're like how do you know so much it's just literally because 
if you know about someone before they come on your show, it shows that you've done your research and it shows that you actually have an interest. But whilst doing my research, funnily enough, I found out that you had a show in Bangalore to 10,000 people, which is another mind-blowing experience which must stick in your head. Going back to that decade, the decade being the noughties, the decade that I start, I started the decade with getting uh, that show on Radio 1 and talking about the journalism. That show, which I think was... 2005 into 2006 possibly I, I can't remember the year once again was one of those how did I end up here moments um I I was doing the show in um in here in London in the UK and I went out to India and I started writing for a few publications in India and I had someone at Sony Records in India who was listening to my show on uh the Asian Network and on Radio One and just went should we um, put out a compilation together? Because this music's really good. Now, these days, India has a massively wide, deep, and unbelievably complex music industry full of an indie side, a hip-hop side, an alternative side, the mainstream, singer-songwriters, instrumentalists, all of that stuff. Back then, it was a couple of bands, uh, a couple of DJs, this is the entire country, and then Bollywood, which is a monolith. Um, and, and so, yeah, I just put this compilation together um, via, um, yeah, some guys here, a, a record label here and a record label in India, and didn't think too much about it. I just remember thinking, oh, that's nice. Someone's asked me to put a compilation together. I wasn't aware what was going on in India, but the timing was just ridiculous because I got a call saying, oh, just so you know, you're albums at number one uh in india it's at number one in all the major cities because you know india's massive it's like america all right so when you're number one in london uh, sorry when you're in number one in new york that's a headline in itself and then when you get to get number one in la that's another headline so the same applies to india when you're at number one in Delhi, that's just already massive then i was at number one in bangalore and and, and mumbai and so yeah i, I just remember not really understanding it I, I, if i could do anything differently i would i wish i could have been present when all this stuff was going on because if i look back to all of these so-called wins um and where i was where my head was when they happened i was just basically that emoji of the head exploding constantly you know but i never had time to you know uh, actually process it so they're like you're number one in india and i'm like Pfft. they're like you're coming out to india to do a tour and i'm like Pfft. and then you know do this tour there's people turning up paying ridiculous amounts of money to see me i'm djing i've got you know imposter syndrome where i'm going surely they're not here to see me i think i'll just quickly dj and then go back to my hotel and then i get uh, my agent there going look we've got this booking for new year's even bangalore and the money was ridiculous and um yeah i turned up and as we were driving from the airport to the hotel, my face was on big billboards. Once again, head exploding emoji. And then when I turned up to do a little sound check and all DJs want to that just means pressing play for four seconds going, yeah, mate, that's fine. Turned up to do that sound check and, and, and kind of looked up and went, this tent must hold like 20,000 people. And in the end, it was like, it wasn't 20,000, it was 10,000 people. Um, you know, a little known story, um, and once again, you know, I never knew any of this stuff was coming down the line, even a year before it. I did the gig. And then when I got paid, the promoter walked into my hotel room and I got paid in rupees. And he came in with a sack of money, like, like, 
like a 1950s bank robber and emptied the sack on my bed and there were just wads of cash, Indian rupees falling on my bed. And I was just like exploding head emoji. And yeah, um, really rather intense. Uh, it, it must be so different to, like we say, we're in a pandemic at the moment. Um, radio shows aren't in front of people. They're in a studio. But from doing it in front of 10,000 people to, say, being in a BBC radio studio, yeah, you may have the odd guest that comes in every now and again, but purely seeing that personally and emotionally yeah. must have been a whole other level. It is a whole other level. What I wouldn't do, though, and I get why people do this, is compare DJing to uh, radio presenting. I mean, I totally mm -hmm. get that loads of radio presenters are also DJs and they'll do a DJ set um, in the studio. But the intention is always different. When you're in a radio studio, you're speaking to that one person listening at home. You're quite literally whispering into their ear. Even if you're doing a mix, you're basically going, here's a mix from my heart straight into your cerebral cortex. Whereas when you're out and about and you're DJing, then it turns into, let's make some fucking noise. And, you know, yeah. you, you become yeah. a performer and also you're very aware that you're not, playing to even 10,000 individuals, you're playing to this animal that's 10,000 people strong and it has little peaks and troughs and that bunch of mates and that singular person who's had a uh, this happen to them in their life and all the people in the front roads and people at the back who are drinking and looking at you cynically. So it's com a completely different thing. And I, I wouldn't really compare the two, but yeah, DJing to 10,000 people and then, uh, dealing with a pandemic. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay. I was DJing to 10,000 people back in, 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 in the noughties. And over the last 10 years, you know, I've had kids. I've uh, only taken gigs that I really want to take. Uh, I've only taken, I'm going to be honest with you, because it's the nature of the music that I play. Um, you know, it's not house music. There isn't loads of money in it. So I've only taken the big paying gigs and not the small paying gigs. But those guys, who are DJing to 10,000 people every weekend and then the pandemic hit, no wonder they started losing their shit on Facebook and, and, and across social media. It must have been such a mental health crisis for them. If you're doing something with a routine, especially, you're used to that, you're performing, you're doing this, you're doing that. But if we had to throw it back on a personal level, obviously throughout the noughties, the 90s, and everything just like that, you've witnessed and heard lots of different kinds of music. What kind of music do you personally listen to and what kind of music did you grow up with? Wow, okay. So, I mean, I first of all, I just want to say thank you for asking that because most people see what you do on air and think that's what you listen to and it's really, really reductive. When colour and race comes into it, it's massively reductive. Uh, you know, we've grown up, I, I feel, um, I mean, we're fixing this now, but I feel if you're, especially in my time in the 80s, 90s, and even up to the noughties, if you were a white music fan, you were a music fan. So you were able to do pop, you were able to do folk, country and Western. If you wanted to do hip hop, you did it like Westwood did. If you wanted to do jazz and all that stuff, you did it. Like, like Giles Peterson did. Uh, so I'm just saying I appreciate that question because no one usually ever gives me the intent and openness to think, well, actually, I do that as well. I don't, 
wake up in the morning to the sound of Punjabi MCs Mungad Dabatske, right? So, um, yeah, growing up, same as everybody else, full-on synth pop attack, 80s, you know, lots of electronic stuff. Prince uh, specifically was a totemic figure who massively uh, influenced me musically, you know, an entry point to everything. And I used him as a stepping stone to jump to the Beatles, to psychedelic, because Prince was very psychedelic. I used him as a stepping stone uh, into uh, Motown, into George Clinton and funk, Sly and the Family Stone. I used him as a stepping stone into folk, uh, into pop, into his guitar playing took me to, you know, first guitar players who played amazingly, then into soft metal, then into hard metal, then into thrash. So um, for the 80s and 90s, I listened to everything. And, you know, by virtue of amazing timing and just, you know, the year I was born, I turned 19 as the second summer of love happened and and, and rave exploded. So I was just, you know, like, like lots of people kind of go, uh, you know, it's amazing. You're into loads of really great music. I think a lot of my generation just got lucky. You know, we just got lucky because we were at the arse end of the 60s and 70s. We were there for synth pop and the 80s. We were there for house music and rave and electronica. So by the time the early noughties came about, we already had uh, a personal spiritual musical CV that was massively populated. Then on top of that, if you add all the South Asian music that I grew up with, I was just it was an embarrassment of riches, which I didn't particularly work hard for. I was just lucky. It's you have to deal with what life throws at you, and you you always have to adapt. It's it's that kind of fight or flight fight or flight situation, isn't it? And it's just let's also think more about you. Um, is obviously with the concert, like you said, in the tent. There is, must have been some experiences that you've witnessed and you've interviewed quite a lot of people. You've been sat down with a lot of people. You've been on TV shows, which I'm guessing once again, when you were a child, you dreamed of, never really expected, must have come around at a time where it was just a kind of head explosion emoji. But is there a particular other than, say, the concert one for New Year's Eve around that time um, that sticks in your head? I mean, I've got I've, a lot of stuff's happened. I've just explained to you that uh, um, if there's one thing I could change is I wish I was, had been present through all those amazing things because, I th you know, look, let me give you an example. You know, when these new pop stars come along or someone comes becomes famous and the nation kind of goes, oh, that person's really famous now. Um, I think we really, really bond with the people who are present, who really, it feels like they're really enjoying their fame or they're really enjoying their experiences. I specifically was always walking around with a gobsmacked look on my face um, and I don't think I was very good at being present. And a net result of that is I don't remember much. But if I had to pull certain things out the top of my head, uh, playing at Glastonbury, you know, I went to Glastonbury uh, uh, from my first Glastonbury was 92. And um, I know it's different now, but back then, for a good 10 years, apart from Reading and Leeds, that was it. It was just Glastonbury. Glastonbury wasn't just the festival. It was the only festival, mm -hmm. you know, apart from your raves that happened, you know, uh, in, in, you know, in the countryside, you didn't have all these other festivals. So Glastonbury was the place and playing at Glastonbury, the first time I played at Glastonbury, which I think was around about 1998, 
blew my tiny little mind. Then I played Glastonbury every year for about 10 years. Every time I played at Glastonbury, I remember thinking, you're playing Glastonbury. You should really thank God for what you've got and had in your life. To extend on from that, I didn't really know much about the Burning Man Festival, all right? And I ended up playing at Burning Man in 2009. And even that was ridiculous because I knew about Burning Man when I went out because I'd done my research because I'd been booked to play at Burning Man. And I was like, yo, this is mad. This is like Glastonbury, but on another planet. This is this is Glastonbury in extremists. But um, when I actually played Burning Man, and Burning Man isn't just about being at a festival, you end up basically losing yourself. Like you don't need any drugs at, at, at Burning Man because the psychedelic experience infects everybody. And I just remember playing outdoors outside this dome that my friend friend booked me had built and just watching, because it's such a big vista in front of you, watching over the space of an hour thousands of people just appear out of the darkness with neon and you know 10 people here and 60 people walking along here and well, there's some stragglers there and and at the end of the gig having a couple of thousand people in front of me and we're outdoors and there's a sandstorm happening and you can actually see the milky way as you look up you know like literally that band of the milky way splashed across the sky like like someone's just splashed white paint and i just remember going oh my god i love this thank you so much music for for bringing me this so yeah i think you know musically at least glastonbury and burning man and, and the playing playing there that that was amazing definitely one to see and it's definitely one that i'd love to go and hopefully venture off to whether that be for work personal level or anything it just sounds amazing but let's make it a little bit more complicated with everything that's happened what would you name your autobiography all right so i I am writing at the moment i am trying to write some of these memories down because they're all going to disappear soon um i have no idea um just off the top of my head because i've thought about this recently uh of course the most obvious one would be fact or friction but it's so cheesy um i don't want to use it um i just really like the idea of ridiculous, stupid-sounding book names. And um, I used to really like Robert Rankin, the science fiction author, and he had a, a book called Sex and Drugs and Sausage Rolls. So I wanted to subvert that and call it Sex and Drugs and Ticker Rolls or something like that. But even that, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, look, it's weird because this at this stage in my life, even though I've celebrated South Asian culture in Britain, I've never really realized just how important it's been to everything that I've done. So I think if there was any title, it would have to definitely uh, mention the, the, the British side of me and the Asian side of me. Whether we do that via comedy or via some really, really worthy title, I don't know. You mentioned people that you've looked up into the past and taken advice from. Who do you look up to? Is there any role models? Is there any aspirations? When it comes to role models, I think role... Look, you've got mentors and you've got role models. For me, a mentor is someone who personally invests some time in you. And uh, so I've had mentors in my life and I mentor a lot of people. And to this day, I mean, I'm probably mentoring 
more musicians now or more individuals now um than i've ever in my life i think i've got 150 people not mentoring every day but people i've given a phone number and said okay if you need anything just call me in terms of your career all right um but personally i found that that those first few years of radio one really hard so um someone who really helped and i know it's such a cliche because he helped so many people um one of the people was john peel okay the the legend that is john peel and if you are watching or listening to this podcast now and don't know who john peel is i implore you to go and find out because you know he's probably the most famous radio presenter in british radio history and he didn't mentor me but i looked up to him and then once again head exploding emoji i turn up at radio one i've got the job alongside nahal uh, on the first day not, we're not broadcasting we're just told to turn up we're told oh that room is all the daytime djs and shows and that room is all the specialist or nighttime djs and shows so we walk in and you know i'm just blown away there's there's you know zane lowe's sitting in in fact it wasn't even zane uh then it was uh uh joe wiley and um mm. and steve i think or i think anyway um within a couple of months zane was working there uh, you also had Westwood coming in, Trevor Nelson, Annie Nightingale, oh my God, you know, the legend to end all legends. All of these great DJs, uh, Giles Peterson, um, Fabian Groove Rider, if you're into drum and bass. And I got told to sit down at a desk because it was kind of vaguely hot desking for us DJs because we're only in two or three days a week so it's like just find a spare one of these desks so I'm like I'll have that one and I'm there getting someone to teach me to log in and someone's going you need an email address whilst we're doing this John Peel just walks in and sits down sits down next to me and I'm like and he's like how you doing Bobby you're doing the new Asian show I, I was almost speechless he then, you know, like basically shook my hand and welcomed me. Uh, beautiful energy, beautiful face with that massive smile of his, uh, big rosy cheeks. And um, yeah, he then went on to say, I think I said something along the lines of, yeah, I'm presenting the first like Asian music show on Radio One. And he just went off into this whole like, well, I was playing this Bhangra band in 1983. I played that, do you know that Bunga Band? Yeah, 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 yeah. I played uh, naming their albums. He gave them live sessions. I didn't know any of this. You know, I, I knew he'd venture into that territory every now and again. So anyway, to cut a long story short, um, watching him up close, mm -hmm. and he was always ready to give um, to give advice. No, in fact, let me rewind that. It was, he wasn't just always ready to give advice. He was always speaking slightly louder so someone like me could hear about how he was doing his job so he'd say stuff like uh you know oh i'm listening to all of this stuff you've got to listen to everything you know i mean why wouldn't you listen to everything they all pay the license you know he'd just teach me little things like that should be obvious which is yeah if you don't listen to everything that comes in not only you're not doing your job you're doing a great disservice and possibly it's a crime against music because let's face it if you don't listen to that last cassette or that last CD that, that that comes in, you could be missing out on the next Beatles, the next bloody, you know, whoever, like Prince or Bowie. So uh, I learned a lot from watching him and I learned a lot from 
soaking in stuff that he was saying to me. And, uh, you know, I still look up to him. And, and, and I was working at, at Radio on the day he passed away when the news came through. And um, it's mad because, of course, I've had losses in my own life, but I still talk to him. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he, he wasn't like my bestest, bestest friend. I still talk to him a lot when I'm doing my radio show because I kind of feel like he's the patron saint of my radio show and he, he's always in the room. There's always somebody who's always guided you, always been there, and has always been not a shoulder for you to cry on, but someone you could always call up whenever it's needed. But let's now think into the future. Where would you like to be in a year? Is it still presenting a radio show? Is it still BBC Asian Network or is it on a completely different radio station? I doubt it, but you've got to ask. Yeah, no, of course. Look, uh, I'm the oldest person at the Asian Network. I'm the oldest DJ. I'm older than all the the bosses and all that kind of stuff. Um, That wasn't part of the plan, by the way. Uh, But I don't know, you know, watching people like Annie Nightingale and and, and Giles Peterson and and, and John Peel and all, all these other great, great people, Trevor Nelson, um, you know, I suppose there is some space at the BBC uh, for an ageing DJ. Look, I know one thing. I know my radar for finding new music, especially South Asian music, is probably the best radar on planet Earth. I I can say that. So I wouldn't get rid of me, (laughs) but I would totally understand if the BBC tomorrow said, we need to, we need a younger face. Uh, and I kind of get that. Uh, I think, you know, in, in this Instagrammable culture, in this, 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 this revolution that we're going through where, where someone who's 18 right now might never even really clock what a radio is because they're just listening and consuming everything on this device that's in their pocket. I can totally understand why someone who's 18 now might literally say subconsciously to themselves, I don't buy, I'm not buying anything from that guy. I'm only going to buy it from someone who's exactly the same age as me and who looks as young as I do. I think that's sad personally, but I get it, okay? So if the BBC would let me continue doing this, of course, I'd like to still be on on the Asian network or anywhere else on the BBC. What I really would like to do, which I have let kind of go since I've had kids is, I was making loads of documentaries when I first started on Radio One. I, I, you know, I got I, uh, got that Sony Award for Vote Friction. I made a documentary on Burning Man. Also, the year I went out, uh, I've made numerous radio docs and TV docs about music and, and culture, uh, tech as well. One of my big interests is, is tech and space. And it's really weird because I've, I've been into this for like decades, and suddenly I've got you know eighteen-year-old guys into crypto going. All right, we need to talk about Elon Musk, yeah, because we need to become a multi-planetary species. Let me explain it to you, Bobby. I'm like, look, I know this stuff, right? So I'd like to still be working at the BBC, but I do see a future where I need to just take my not foot off the pedal, but my face off the screen and my voice away from the mic. Because what I really would like to do is basically be instrumental and use my skills in taking South Asian music and doing globally for South Asian music, what's happened to uh, South American and Latino music. And the time's right. Yeah, we're only about two or three years away from that happening. 
if I can do that for anyone who's ready to pay me and, and use this, this, this knowledge, which is unique, uh, I'll be more than happy to do that too. I can completely understand it because with experience comes knowledge. Absolutely. There's nothing about it. People say you've got a degree, but what experience have you got? If you've not proved yourself, life is a proving ground and you need some kind of experience to show that you know what you're talking about. You know how it works. It's the whole kind. That's why it's asked for in a job. But if we go back to what you just said, let's talk technology. What's your favorite piece? My favorite piece of technology is uh, any any satellite. <laughs> if you want to go really tech vibes, um, you know, the James Webb telescope that's just gone up. Um, I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's been designed by humans on Earth. It's been designed over the last 10 years. It's about to be floating in space, you know, uh, uh, a million miles away from Earth. And uh, I know everyone's going on about it, it being able to look back into the beginning of the universe. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's so powerful. It can look at exoplanets outside of our solar systems, light years, tens of light years away, and hopefully it'll be able to say, oh, that one's got oxygen in its atmosphere, so you could breathe. You know, whether we'll ever be able to get there or not is another question. But as technology goes, you know, if you really want a textbook piece of look at how far humans have come just in a few hundred years, we have just launched a telescope that can look thousands of light years away and actually tell you what chemical components are in another planet's atmosphere orbiting around another star. That, my friends, is beyond magic. It's incredible. Like you say, with how things are adapting, South American and Latino music, that's adapting. Technology is adapting. We're now into crypto. Who knows what's truly going to be next? But with that in mind, you say that you mentor quite a lot of people. You've handed out your phone number and you've done a lot of different stuff to help a lot of different people, whether it be radio, just in life or anything like that. What's one main bit of advice that you would give to somebody if you were mentoring them? Oh, wow. Okay, so uh, um, there's about three or four, and I'm going to list them really quickly, all right? So number one is is um, don't bullshit and don't lie, okay? The moment you're into a relationship uh, or a situation where that person's mentoring you, yeah, doesn't matter how much your gob has got you out of situations before, the moment someone says, I'm going to mentor you, um, you can't bullshit them because it's really disrespectful and it's really cheesy. Like I've mentored people. Uh, look, mentoring means you talking and telling people what you think they should do. You never go in thinking they have to listen to you. But if they listen to you and if they act on it or not, that's fine. When someone goes, yeah, yeah, I've done that. I've done that. And then you'll go, or oh, how did you do it? And then you know they've lied. Um, the mentoring process breaks down because you literally go I can't mentor this person because basically they're a billy bullshitter so don't bullshit or lie the moment someone's floating in your orbit saying I want to help you it literally be really not grateful to them grateful to the universe and just be real and they will help you every step of the way the second thing is is uh, in terms of uh, advice for people going forward uh, in terms of business and, and mentoring and all that kind of stuff I would say definitely definitely um look people won't understand this because a lot of people are artists but definitely keep working and don't ever let anything set you back and i know people go well you don't know how i felt but the thing is i've seen 
time in a way that you guys haven't. So I've seen the artist who gave me a demo and it was really bad. And then the next demo they gave was like loads better. And then the next demo they gave was kind of okay, all right? And then another 20 demos were kind of okay. And then the 21st demo, and they're as good as Prince or Bowie. That happens. But 90% of artists and musicians, and I think this can apply in any sphere of work, give up after the third knockback. Um, you just have to keep going. You have to obviously at some point turn around if it's not working after a couple of years and say, maybe this isn't for me. But the amount of really great artists uh, who, who almost give up is, is ridiculous. So you need to keep going. And, and, and interested parties, DJs on radio stations, or maybe if you're designing houses, a really big architect or in whatever field you work in, they will always be blown away by work. I think there's this real lie that people, uh, especially young people starting out in the working world tell themselves. And that lie really, really is, is they don't have noticed me or uh, if I could just get in front of them, then everything would be really good. So I just need to speak to them and break it down. I mean, that does my head in. You know, when people, when musicians do that and go, they go, I need to speak to you. And I'm like, send me your music. And they're like, yeah, but I want to speak to you. And why don't we meet up and I'll play your music? And I'm like, dude, if anything, that's, if, if anything, that's going to really spoil it. Because if I'm listening to the music while you're there going, what do you think? What do you think? Hey, hey, listen to the snare. Listen to the snare. I'm literally going to go, shut up, you twat. I really need to listen to this in a pure meditative state, which I can do at home. Um, and I will always, always, as I've said, listen to everything that comes in because anyone in a position of power in the world of work, it's in their interest to listen to every demo, to listen to every track, to look at every building design you've done or whatever science experiment you've done. Just keep sending your work in. Don't give up and also don't get in their faces. Your work will be looked at, listened to, consumed, and if you're good enough, people will call upon you.